My guest today is Robert Siemens. He's an associate professor at New York University's Stern School of Business. He's here today to discuss his work on artificial intelligence and its impact on the U.S. economy. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. Uh, it's interesting that occasionally I will talk to groups and uh, about technology and its impact on the economy, and I'm pretty optimistic. But then when it comes time for questions, it's nothing but concerns, worries about jobs, worries about AI creating a surveillance state, concerns China is going to take the lead in AI and they'll become the world's dominant power. So it's far more worries than like, oh, tell me more about how wonderful uh, artificial intelligence will make uh, the economy and our lives. So do you, are you, are you a techno-optimist? If so, could you give me the techno-optimist case? I am a techno optimist. Uh, yeah, I, I I get I get bummed out when I when I hear many of the stories about robots taking jobs, AI taking jobs. Um, when I hear a lot of pessimism about uh, the effect that AI will have on the economy, um, I, I'm pretty optimistic about a the um, you know the positive effects it'll have in terms of growth, and we we can get into that. Um, and I'm I'm fairly pos- you know positive about the effects it'll have on jobs. I think a lot of the stories are about substitution. I think substitution, you know, AI substituting for human labor is actually um, much more difficult, much harder than I think people realize. Um, and in fact, I think there's actually a, a really good case to be made that there are going to be a lot of complementarities. And again, happy to, to get into all of that. But um, short answer is I'm a techno-optimist. Right. So you, you've, uh, you have a paper uh, helpfully titled AI and the Economy, which you've yes. co-written with yeah. Jason Furman, former Obama administration economic advisor. And you yourself were the Obama uh, administration on the Council of Economic Advisors. Yes. And uh, so Jason's been in here uh, before. And... Uh, in the paper, uh, AI and the Economy, you write, artificial intelligence has the potential to dramatically change the economy. All right. So um, so I think the first obvious way, uh, and then we'll sort of get the job, is really economic growth, productivity, creating a more productive economy. Uh, that's been a that's, – that's a constant theme in this podcast that we've had this productivity slowdown. Yep. And if the U.S. economy is going to grow at least – or anywhere close to as fast in the future as it has in the past, we're going to, have to be more productive, and hopefully AI will be part of that story. We haven't seen it yet, though. So uh, assuming that, that it is going to be as important a technology as what you think it is, uh, when are we going to see that AI-driven productivity boom? Yeah, so, <clears throat> yeah, so this is a great question. So first – so. Um, I wish I knew the precise answer to that. Right? Yeah, I'm not day trading. I, I I'm not day yeah, exactly. trading. Right? So we don't yeah, have, I could time don't have to be it, too I'd be precise. In a very business. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, so I, I do think that we're going to see a productivity boost from AI. I think there are two questions. One is how big is that boost going to be? And the other is when is that boost going to happen? Um, in terms of how big is that boost going to be, I think one thing you could do is – and one thing that we do in the paper is we look – um, at the case of robotics, right, which is sort of ha- have, have been around longer than AI. And so we've, uh, there are some economists that have been able to look at robots and use robots to try to measure um, the, the effect of these newer technologies on the economy. What those, you know, what, what the prior work has found is that it has led to about a 10% increase in uh, growth. And so using that as a rough benchmark, you know, I think it's, it's reasonable to expect that at some point in the future, AI will boost growth by about 10%. Um, now, w- when in the future? My guess would be over the next like 10 years, let's say. Mm-hmm. 
I think we would start to see that. Um, there are others that might think that that would happen a little bit quicker. I think there are others that are maybe just generally pessimistic about when it would happen. But, but let me just say sort of 10 years. Um, I, I guess the, the bigger question is sort of why it hasn't happened yet. Um, I think there, you know, so there, there's a really good paper by Eric Brynjolfsson. He's an economist at MIT. Daniel also Rock. a uh, also a I think a multiple uh, okay. time guest okay. on, the, great, on the show. Great. Yeah. You, you have wonderful taste. In well, excellent, excellent. Um, so so he has a paper with a uh, student of his who's excellent named Daniel Rock, uh, and another economist from Chicago named Chad Severson who's also excellent. Yes, <clears throat> who you also have had. On we have not, but we're we, we're okay. we're eager to get him. Pass yeah. the word along. Um, so um, so so they they have a they have a really nice paper on that, that is trying to get at why we haven't yet seen. Uh, any boost yet from AI, um, and and the central thesis of their of their paper is that in order to see this boost, we need to see the complementary investment in firms or perhaps in training of individuals and, and, and things like that um, before we can see the the boost from AI. And, and so I, I think that that's I think so. That that's, so that's a story that the technology is here. Obviously, it's always improving and evolving, but we have sort of good AI technology now, but it's sort of just not being used as much as it could be. It's not sort of diffusing through the economy. There's these sort of bottlenecks maybe at the company level where you just don't have enough people who know how to use it. So I think we're actually at the so, – so their, their story is less about that. It, it's more about the sort of complementary investments that mm-hmm. need to be made. Um, I guess stepping back for a minute though, I think that we're not – you know, I, I don't think that we are far enough along as we are perhaps led to believe mm-hmm. in, in terms of the, the stories that we read in popular media. The popular media, it suddenly seems like uh, they're about to take all the jobs. Yeah. Uh, we're close to sci-fi levels of AI where you have sentient robots. And we, what we really need to work, worry about is a Terminator-like scenario. Yes. Don't worry about the Terminators. We are so far away from that mm-hmm. um, that, that I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we need to worry about that. So in terms of where we are in terms of the science, so, so I'm, not, I'm not a computer scientist, okay? But um, I, I have been looking at some of this as part of uh, some of the research that I've been doing. You know, the, in terms of the advances, if you will, in the lab, right, sort of the basic science of, of AI, um, you know, you can date that back to, you know, not even quite 10 years ago, right? So we've seen a, just a really big increase, you know, dating back roughly 10, 8 to 10 years ago uh, in terms of advances in lab settings. And we are only just beginning to see a lot of that be... Um, commercialized, right, sort of turned into commercial applications. One of the things that we do in the paper that Jason Furman and I do in the paper that, um, uh, that you mentioned earlier um, is we, we sort of, A, try to describe that, and then B, also try to provide a little bit of evidence about um, the speed with which this is starting to be commercialized. And commercial applications, you can maybe roughly date back, you know, the beginnings of it maybe four or five years ago mm-hmm. when you start seeing a big increase in VC investment, in this area, right? So there's a lot of VC investment in startups in this area. Um, obviously, also a lot of a lot of investment by uh, large established tech firms like Google, Amazon, and others. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual commercial applications are really sort of just beginning, just beginning to come online. And so I think you know wh- while there, there's a lot of narrative out there about what AI can do, fears about what it can do, maybe excitement in some cases about what it can do. Um, you know, the actual commercial applications are really sort of just beginning to. To roll out. Right. Uh, you mentioned uh, sort of comparing it to uh, robotics as yeah. sort of another uh, technology with some somewhat similar features and the ability to both sort of replace work as well as be complements uh, to human labor. Do you do you think um, though that it would be bigger? Than ro- it seems like it could be more. It could go more places and do more things than, uh, than robots. So when you talk about ten yeah. percent, and uh, and again, do you mean so? 
thanks to AI, an economy that was growing at 2% could grow at 2.2%? 2.2%. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's what we mean by 2%. Which, doesn't, which may seem insignificant to people, but there's other a lot of policy interventions that, you know, that people talk a lot about that don't give that kind of growth. So, do you, right. again, so do you think AI could be bigger than that? Or is that a conservative investment? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, no. So, so I use that ten percent uh, because it's the best uh, sort of estimate that I that I've got. Um, I think there's a lot of noise around that, and so where's the noise coming from? I, I think it's coming from two places. So, on the on on the one hand, I think that you're right that you might see AI applications in more um, across more industries, across more settings in the economies, more more sorry sectors of the economy. Whereas uh, robots, you know, we we really. You know, we primarily see it in manufacturing, and even in manufacturing, we primarily see it in the auto sector. Um, I, I think it's reasonable to expect that we'll see AI across more sectors of the economy. So you might expect that that might lead to perhaps like a larger overall boost. But on the other hand, it strikes me that a lot of the applications that AI will get used for um, are um, you know, sort of much smaller in magnitude to, to a certain extent uh, relative to robotics, right? I mean, when... Um, <clears throat> When when firm, when establishments right when manufacturing establishments put robotics into place, they're they're making a really large capital investment. Um, they tend to rearrange and sort of re- rethink the the production process that they're doing, and all of that sort of leads to this this effect. Um, and and so it, it strikes me that sort of a, sort of a larger effect that you're that you're getting um, in robotics, but but in a smaller sector of the economy. AI we're going to see it across a much wider swath of the, of the economy. Um, but it's not clear to me that you're going to be seeing really big changes, right? right? So um, uh, where where would we put you on a scale of sort of <laughs> optimism about the economic impact and how significant uh, would it be? If, if, if on, on a scale of being on the low end, maybe Robert Gordon, and on the high end, me – <laughs> I'm, I'm very hopeful. So, I mean, so, but, but, but so, compared to Robert Gordon, you seem more optimistic about the impact. I, Robert Gordon, who we've also had on the podcast. Yes. Uh, your taste yeah, is well fantastic. Done. Well yeah. done by us. Um, so, yeah, so I, I'm more optimistic than him. Um, I guess I'd, I'd like to get your take. So you think that 10% is is too low? I don't. I Well, one, I, I think I think that that very well may be, I think, a, uh, a good um, sort of a g- good first cut. Uh, I think, and I think most of these estimates, when you make them, you should probably make them with the technology as it currently exists. Mm-hmm. Of course, when I talk to people from Silicon Valley, you know, they sort of infu- infuse yeah, me with a great deal right. of optimism about where the technology is leading. And I would hope that eventually it could be uh, more than that. Though, of course, as a policymaker, um, I wouldn't uh, count on that. But you're, but it's, it's a story that the sort of slow growth story, mm-hmm. kind of the CBO, we're at a two percent lucky economy long term. Maybe conservatively, we can we can do uh, we we can do better than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, so now we so let, so so more growth, but of course uh, people also care about the jobs, and that's mm-hmm. and that you have the big concern. And as I understand it, and correct, I'm sure how I've gotten this badly wrong is that it's we're kind of seeing a we'll see a race with the technology, sort of the degree to which the technology will allow um, jobs to be replaced. Versus uh, to the extent to which it creates sort of new jobs and new things for people to do rather than just uh, old things or maybe doing those old things more efficient. Is that – do I have that kind of right? <clears throat> How would you describe yeah, the, it? Yeah, the way I like to think about it is, is uh, sort of three categories. And, and we tend to focus on, on what I'll call category one and category three. And we sort of forget a lot about category two. Category one is where AI replaces a, an existing job. Right. Okay? Uh, category three is where – 
<clears throat> we have we have some brand new job created that that didn't exist before. Right. I think we'll have both of those two categories. Right. We'll have some new jobs, or, or if you will, like new occupations that didn't exist before. We, we will have some of those. We will also have you know some existing occupations that maybe get entirely automated by AI. You know, get automated away, and so those occupations disappear. Um, I think there's going to be very little, though, actually happening in both of those categories. I think rather it's you know many existing occupations. The nature of the job in, or the nature of the sort of tasks that a human does in those occupations will change, um, and I think that that's you know you're going you know that, that's basically the story of all the complementarities that you're going to see right. between AI and what it is that people do in these jobs. So let me just I, I could give you I, I think it's useful to give a few examples. Uh, so I let love me, them. Um, let, let, let me give a few examples. Um, so I'm a I'm a professor. Okay. And so I, I show up somewhere in an occupational code as a professor, and, and there's some sort of description of what it is that a professor does. Um, one of the things that I used to spend a bit of time doing was looking over the assignments that I would get uh, and you know, worrying a little bit about whether there was any plagiarism going on. Okay. It turns out that now there's an AI application that helps me with this. So there's something called Turnitin. Mm-hmm. And what, what Turnitin does is it takes all of the, the papers that my students hand in, and it compares, A, it compares them to each other. You know, using some sophisticated um, uh, natural language processing, but it also compares them to all the prior papers that this app Turnitin has received in the past. Um, and then what it does is, for me, it sort of flags, and I can set different thresholds for this, but it sort of flags um, areas where it looks like there might be some plagiarism. And I should say, of course, as a professor at NYU, that almost never should, right. you know, happens. Okay, but. Sometimes it does, and then right. So, so it's basically a it's a dumb machine that comes up with a simple prediction about whether there's some uh, plagiarism that has happened or not. And it turns out that the cases that it flags are typically where students have copied and pasted the actual questions that I've asked, right? And so that, those pieces of the text look really similar to each other. Mm-hmm. And so you wouldn't want a machine to dock the student right. You don't want a machine right automatically. It picks up something all of a sudden the grade goes down. There's, that's right. It's time for that, that's at the point where you need to exactly you know, exactly and so it makes exactly and so you exactly and so it's nice to right so so there's there's sort of this what the machine can do really well which is predicting you know the probability of something uh, happening um, but then you want to sort of then serve that up to a human who can use common sense and judgment uh, knowledge of stuff that has happened in the past to make some decision about what to do from that um, so so this app has made my life easier. By the way, I have, this is not a plug for turn it in. This is, right. you know, I have to You're use it. Early, early uh, investor. That's, no. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so it's made my life easier. It, has, it sort of frees my time up to do a little bit more research, maybe to meet with students a little bit more. Um, and so that, that's sort of the, the, the sort of complementarity boost that I think you'll see in a lot of cases, right. a lot of these sort of use cases. So, so that, that, that's that middle category, right? right sort of what, what I was calling category two. I think what we're going to see is a whole lot of stuff like that across many sectors of the economy where AI helps us uh, in many different ways, ways that we can't entirely foresee right now. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the startups or the folks in Silicon Valley right. that you're talking with. It, it's basically those use cases that they're thinking really hard right. about. So um, it sounds like the the scenario which uh, sells a lot of books that robots take, you know, all the jobs and there's, you know, five people have jobs and their job is, is owning the, the robots doing all the work. Uh, mass unemployment, technological unemployment, it seems like you're, for now, skeptical about that or not. I, I'm skeptical that AI will lead to mass unemployment. Okay. I'm well, skeptical of that. You, That's it, not to say we don't have issues in the, in the labor market right. in, our, in our country. Well, well would it, um, okay, I want to get to that. But would you, one more little forecast, would it surprise you is, as if these technologies advance, become more permeated through society, that we had higher – Unemployment or less 
labor force participation than we've seen in the past because of this. It might result in somewhat higher sort of structural unemployment or non-work. I don't think so. Okay. Um, I, I, I think AI is going to have very little bearing on net um, – uh, like on net. Mm-hmm. I, I, so the, the one thing I, I want to point out is I, I think it is going to vary a bit by sector. So okay. I think that there are going to be probably some sectors where uh, you'll see AI <clears throat> automating away jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so on a sector-specific basis, you might see some of this. But on net, no, I, I don't think that uh, it'll that AI will have much effect on in terms of like increasing unemployment. Right. And, and, and right now, do you think even right now we are seeing, you know, impacts, whether it's on sectors or particular kinds of workers or age groups. Do you think we're already seeing any impact? Yeah. So the sectors that I worry about are, are more are, you know, sectors like uh, finance, um, legal sector, uh, some of those sectors where, uh, you know, in the past you had analysts that performed really important. So, so I'm sort of thinking about like uh, maybe in, in investment banking or something mm-hmm. like that or um, research and, you know, the research function for sales and trading. Um, you know, you had um, analysts that performed these types of roles where uh, the, the types of things that they're doing at the end of the day were, it turns out, you know, are probably relatively easy to automate. Um, and so I think, I think it's those sectors, <clears throat> excuse me, um, where you're going to see more of an effect from AI. Um, I, I think that there'll probably be some newer jobs that get created there. Right? So, so what I think what will happen – let me step back from it. What I think will happen there is um, th- there's going to be an increase in the use of computer scientists to create pretty sophisticated models about uh, what will happen in different economies, maybe trading strategies around that. Um, and so you'll see some sort of newer types of jobs in that specific sector created. Um, that will do away, away with like a lot of the research function that uh, maybe some of these analysts did in the past. Um, you'll probably see some new jobs that are created around, and I think you'll see th- this. By the way, is sort of the category three, the, the newer jobs, that, right. the, the new job ocup- occupations that get created. Um, I think you'd see a newer category that gets created in this sector, but also a similar job across other sectors that has to do with sort of uh, interpreting and explaining the results that come out of whatever the sophisticated trading algorithm is that you have, because you'd need to somehow describe what that output is. Um, to whoever the senior manager who's in charge of a trading strategy at an investment bank um, <clears throat> is. Uh, and the reason for that is that you, know, you still want – right? And we're talking about a lot of money that, that's perhaps involved in a specific trade. Um, and you'd want to have a human in the loop to make sure that that trade made sense. And to comfort. Comfort really um, the, the 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 final decision maker that that's – this isn't just some black box and they can – they forget – you know, they can – they can, to some degree, they can under, they can understand the interpretation and make the. Uh, this I, I think that's right. I, the interpretation piece, I think, is key. I, I think that that's going to be a new occupation that we'll see. Is there'll be sort of AI interpreters. Right. So when we st- when people start talking more about AI, a lot more news stories, a lot more about this sort of job loss issue. It seems to me uh, that the issue now has sort of moved onto. The, another another AI race, not the race with the robots, but now the race with China, uh, and that we're very worried that China is going to win an AI race and have some sort of permanent economic and military and geopolitical uh, advantage over the United States. So again, the second time I've used sort of the race metaphor, is that the best way to think about it, that we, you have these you have countries sort of racing against each other to become the leader uh, in AI, is that I have problems with it. To me, it seems a little either or. Yeah. I, so um, here's the way I think about it. Um, 
I, so I, I would leave it to a scientist, right, like a computer scientist to worry about, you know, push, you know quote, unquote, pushing the boundaries of AI mm-hmm. and what AI can do. Um, maybe China will beat out the U.S. in terms of, you know, in terms of sort of the basic science. I think what's from a commercial standpoint, um, what I care more about are the commercial applications of AI. Uh, it's not at all clear to me that the Chinese approach would somehow be, I mean, e- even if they are more advanced than the U.S. in terms of what, quote unquote, AI can do, uh, it's not at all clear to me that that then leads to the best commercial, you know, commercial applications. Right. Um, and, and, so, and it's the commercial ap- application piece that I think is the more important piece. Um, now, to the extent that the first piece really matters. Of course, I've, ha- I've had her, I have heard just the opposite argument made that uh, the U.S. may do great research, but China will actually do a better job commercializing it. Um, and, and, I'm not, and again, I'm not fundamentally sure I understand this argument. I don't know if it's because uh, – they have so much. If, if it's partly a, a big data argument, they have so much more data. Then they'll actually be able to take the basic science and and, and, you, and use it better and create better products. I'm not sure, but you you think sort of how our economy is structured is more likely to bring. I do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I I think that this is something um, th- you know that this administration as well as prior administrations has right about this, which is um, that you to a certain extent you want the market to sort out which applications are best and, and which ones aren't. Right. Uh, so I do like that approach. It's an approach that's worked in the, well in the past, and I, I, don't, I, I don't see a reason why it wouldn't work well again right. in this case. Um, now, that being said, so, so I think the one other issue that comes up when we talk about a, a race with China or with any other country, um, and I think it's a really important issue to bring up uh, as it pertains to AI and uh, science in general, um, is, it, is the issue around immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I don't know if we want to go there, and, and th- that's maybe not quite the subject of, of the podcast. Um, but I think thinking, you know, if we really do want to make sure that we are leaders in AI, mm-hmm. then we need to think really hard about whether or the ways in which our immigration policy can make sure that that happens. What, and then what is it, what would be the key aspect there of the immigration policy? I, we, we want to make sure that uh, we're not. We want to make sure that the best and brightest scientists mm-hmm. and the best and brightest entrepreneurs, um, to the extent that they aren't actually born in the U.S., that they want to move to the U.S. and that we allow them to move to the U.S. Right. And so we want to make sure that our immigration policy reflects right. that. I always think of this uh, one line from Elon Musk, you know, who was uh, you know, born in South Africa. South Africa yeah. And he said that he still believes that if you want to do something great and spectacular with your life, there's no better place to try it than the United States of America. And I think it's certainly helpful if people – very ambitious people around the world uh, continue to uh, uh, believe that. Um, the other one, the other issue. So we have sort of this China race. Another issue that I see a lot more now than sort of the jobs issue is is concern about the big technology companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think in, in last week, uh, as we're recording this, Elizabeth Warren put out a plan to uh, to break them up, some of them up uh, to some extent. And I think, and the common argument is. Listen, all these people want to you know, heavily regulate or break up these big technology co- companies. Uh, they're missing the point that we've heard this before, that there are these companies which seem super dominant, even the technology field. And then it turns out they get usurped and disrupted by somebody else, you know, you know Yahoo being a great example, MySpace, Nokia. Uh, so we should just sort of what, let the market work its magic. And these, you know, these forever companies, they'll face challengers. They might still be around, but there'll be new products and new services <clears throat> competing with them. Everything will be fine. And so the response is the difference. Like, so what's, what's changed? And the difference, they'll say, is AI 
and the data that's used to fuel AI. Um, they have all the data. They'll have the best AI, and therefore these companies will be sort of unassailable, and therefore something fundamentally is different about what's going on now uh, than in the past. Uh, how much truth is there to that argument? Um, so uh, th- this is something that I, that I sort of think about mm-hmm. a fair bit. It's something that I worry about, right? I mean, I, I would worry a lot if it was the case that startups had a really hard time entering and either competing against the, the large tech companies or um, providing services for for customers. Um, that and then you know somehow that that service would be taken over by um, you know by a large tech company. So so I worry about that. There's maybe a little bit of evidence that some of that has been happening. There's not a ton of evidence, though. Um, now, I think what's something that you hear about that there's um, one you can't compete with them because they have all they have all the data and they have the best AI. And then the other half of that is they go they you know there's a kill zone and they scoop yeah. up these small companies and therefore you're hurting innovation because you never get they never get you never they never get yeah. big enough to compete or their technology sort of gets subsumed into these companies and and that and it's hurting innovation that way. So yep. Again, I'm not again anecdotally people can point, but I'm not sure. I'm not. I don't know. Maybe I'm not sure. There's actual evidence, you know, systemic sort of empirical evidence of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I mean, so, so it certainly seems like there are a lot of startups that that that, that have entered. Uh, perhaps part of the reason why that you know why they've entered is they uh, they are hoping to be bought up by you know Google or Facebook, Microsoft, uh, one of the, one of the other larger tech companies. Um, one of the things that I've been doing is with Jim Besson. He's a professor at Boston University, perhaps someone else that you've had on your show, or if not, someone you could have on your show. Um, we have. Um, so we, we've been doing a, a survey of startups to try to get a sense of – sorry, this is a survey of uh, what we call sort of AI-enabled startups mm-hmm. – to try to get a sense of um, how much access to, to data matters for these startup firms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it um, – or, or how much you know use you know access to AI or the computer scientists that can do programming uh, AI programming matters. Um, so it it turns out that there are a lot of ways to get data, um, and so this doesn't seem like it's a really big barrier for for these startup firms. Um, and it seems like one of the ways it, this is anecdotal at this point. You know, we're trying to dig in a little bit on this a little bit more, but it seems like one of the ways that firms have been. To the extent that they are that they don't have as much, let's say, data as as the large tech incumbents, one of the ways that they've been trying to get around that is by using different types of algorithms. For example, Bayesian, what are called Bayesian algorithms that rely on less data, um, as a way to try to get around a, a potential lack of access to data. And so it strikes me that um, th- there might be some barriers to entry that startups have, but you know these startups are pretty clever and they, and they are finding ways around it. Right. So I'm not I'm not that worried about um, you know, let's say like lack of entry, uh, you know, from, from startups. Um, now, I think so, so that sort of partially answers your question. There, there's perhaps another piece of your question, which is around how, you know, how worried should we be about these large tech firms? Right. Um, and, and to what extent are they stifling? It, it seems like three years ago, we weren't worried at all. <laughs> now it seems like 
were at least some people are extraordinarily worried that that they they have sort of morphed into like from being one of the crown jewels of the American economy to the biggest problems in the American it's, economy. It is interesting, right? How quickly it's switched. Right. Um, you know, just flipping the question on its head. I mean, I think big tech companies should be pretty worried about this, right? I mean, it seems to me that they are getting this from both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, sure, right? the, the progressives that are. Um, you know, uh, questioning the role of big tech. And then you have the um, folks in the current administration that are also questioning uh, the role of big tech. And so I, I think, you know, and then across, you know, across the Atlantic, we also have um, European regulators that are uh, increasingly looking at big tech. So, so big tech should be worried. In, in terms of how worried I am, I mean, I think that this is a sec- this is going to this is going to sound like a typical you know typical academics answer, right? I wish I could come in here, Jim, and have like <laughs> you know just be really forceful on this issue, and, and I'm not going to be. Um, I think that this is an area where um, I, I I have some concerns, but I haven't seen enough evidence to be overly concerned about it. Um, I I like the idea that the I believe, that the FTC as well as um, sounds like the UK will do this as well, are creating task force, right. you know, task Big report just came out with uh, uh, Jason Furman, I said, co-authored right. uh, in right. the UK about what to do about the large technology company. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and, and so I think, I think it's useful to sort of scrutinize what has happened, what has been happening to sort of debate about this. Um, I, I haven't yet arrived, you know, for myself at sort of a very definitive. Is, is there any place. sort of policy intervention that you're confident enough would be would would encourage and what we want we want we want innovation and competition that yeah. would incur that wouldn't hurt that would enhance competition wouldn't hurt innovation uh, things that I mentioned I think the uh, the UK report mentioned this data portability yeah. kind of move your move your data around from or your your social graph uh, from you know this maybe this social yeah. media to an, help you know bootstrap another social media company yeah. is 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 with, are you comfortable comfortable enough with with that maybe being something that should be looked hard at mandating that? So I, I mean, you know, we we are starting to do that with banks, right? And it, and the other thing that and, and so that's potentially a lesson that we're learning from banks, right? That you can do stuff like that. Um, and so I think it's an area to look at. Um, the the other lesson that we have from banks is you know you don't have to have the same regulation for all you know for all sizes of companies. So one of the things that you worry about in the tech sector is you don't want to come up with a regulation. Because you're worried about what the big tech firms are doing, um, that, and then that regulation would somehow negatively impact what startups can do. And so I think it's fine to say, you know what, we can actually have like a tiered regulatory system where if you're maybe designated, I don't, I don't want to say too big to fail, but you know, <laughs> you're, you're you know, a, a really big tech firm, you could have one set of regulations that's different um, than the regulations for small startups, right? And so. Now, I, lawyers, of course, are licking their chops when I say that, right? right. right? But, but you know, let's you know. It, I think it's okay to to think about regulatory solutions that aren't um, the same for everybody. All right. Um, uh, we're at the very end here, so um, uh, uh, sort of a last question. Uh, the current your current automobile. Do you think that will be the last car you you will ever buy that will not have a high level level of autonomous technology in it? You must talk to you know. You certainly deserve the technology. You must talk to people and so on. What's what, what, what your what's your feeling? I said because right before we went on, I, I saw a poll showing seventy percent of people now are very frightened of the idea uh, of autonomous technology. But it does seem to be but it does seem to be uh, uh, coming despite those kinds of uh, polls. How close is it? Do you think? Uh, in terms of in, pa- in in terms of an autonomous like fully autonomous passenger vehicle that that you, that that you could that at least in some cities at some times. 
uh, in some weather conditions that you can uh, plug in a plug in a destination and then take a nap. Yeah, I mean we are so we're already seeing that. Yeah. I think let's see w- within five years, I think most cars being sold will look like that. Right. I think most people will will not have those features turned on most of the time. In terms of the, the sort of the, the future that some people envision where we have uh, fully autonomous vehicles running around all through the streets and, and no drivers anymore, right. I think that that's a total fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, coming, coming back to the jobs point, truck drivers comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think we, we could be at a point, let's say, in 10 years where long-haul truck driving is automated, uh, but that there's still a, a driver who's sitting in the cab. Uh, perhaps monitoring things as the truck's uh, moving along at a high speed. Um, I think the role of a driver in a city, th- that's not going to change. I would guess that that would not change in my lifetime. Right. Um, you know, like the, the sh- so put differently, the, or just being a little bit more specific, uh, short-haul t- truck drivers in city environments just do a ton of work that has nothing to do with driving um, in terms of loading and unloading and things like that. And moreover, even even the driving function that a lot of those folks do uh, in a city environment, you know, there's so many things that pop up that it's just really hard for me to envision any type of autonomy around that. My guest today has been Rob Siemens. Rob, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim.